Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. Throughout a hugely productive intellectual career spanning more than half a century, the Austrian-born philosopher Martin Buber returned repeatedly and with increasing urgency to the question of Israel's divine election. Buber, who left Nazi Germany to settle in mandatory Palestine in 1938, found in chosenness a historically enacted and contested concept that could either unite the world under divine kingship or divide and alienate its different cultures and continents. In Humanity Divided, Martin Buber and the Challenges of Being Chosen, published by de Gruyter in 2021, Manuel Oliveira of Portuguese Catholic University calls upon more than 30 years of research to explore in depth Buber's teleological concept of chosenness and the strands of philosophy, theology, and history that shape it. Professor Oliveira does more than this, however. He also brings unprecedented depth and scholarly acuity to bear on how chosenness has been infused with a poisonous nationalism. The author analyzes Buber's increasing concern over the influence of Zionism on the concept of chosenness and his tireless work to ameliorate its nationalist and self-glorifying variants by bringing to bear a vast range of sources and concepts that illuminate chosenness as, in the end, a sacred task and not an elite status. Manuel Oliveira joins me today to discuss Humanity Divided. Professor Oliveira, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, David, and thank you for the invitation. It's an honor. Thank you. Uh, I, In getting to know your work, uh, I learned, uh, because of the information that you sent me, that you have degrees in, among other things, law, history, and Jewish thought, and I see that uh, the issue of chosenness is one that you frequently return to in your work. Can you tell us something about your long and really remarkable scholarly career and how the the concept and issue of chosenness became a special interest of yours? Yeah, it started with a five-year program at the Portuguese Catholic University in Lisbon, where I was born, where I studied uh, theology. And uh, after five years, I realized that I had to understand what I had studied, because uh, I realized those are two different things. And so I thought of spending the time in Israel, where it all began, and uh, I thought that it would take me around maybe six months to get a sense of that biblical environment. And uh, after I arrived, uh, very soon I realized even if I would stay for 100 years, it would not be enough to go to the depth of the, the incredible mystery uh, 
in that people, in that land, uh, and the relation between them. So that made me, uh, and I also realized that I was a simple student of theology. I, I was an European Portuguese citizen that came to Israel just to understand the background of the tradition where I was born. And uh, I realized once I got to Israel that uh, there was so much that I didn't know. You know, the, the word Jewish had never been pronounced a single time in my five years of theological studies. And uh, I only knew three things. Um, uh, I knew about uh, um, the Inquisition, about the, the Holocaust, and about uh, the state of Israel. But the Inquisition was not taught at the Catholic University. The Holocaust was not taught uh, at university either. And uh, I only knew it uh, has a number, six million. And the state of Israel was spoken about from the Palestinian problem point of view in Portuguese society. So once I arrived in Israel, I was so touched by the vibrancy, by the, by the, the incredible uh, aspects of life uh, that uh, were alive there in that uh, special land. And so very soon I realized that uh, I would not only need six months, maybe I would need much more, and so I, I decided to dedicate the PhD to the acknowledgement of uh, uh, Jewish thought, Jewish life, and Jewish culture, the Jewish heritage, and uh, I, I did it at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And so, and you studied, I believe, with uh, uh, my Dr. Vater as well, Paul Mendes Flor, is that correct? Yes, yes, I was his assistant for eight years, but I got to know him uh, two years before that. Uh-huh. Now, uh, your work provides a very detailed and nuanced view of Boover, Boober's thought and and the, the vast array of issues that he confronted. And you note that his varied and sometimes, I should say, contradictory ethical, theological, philosophical, and po- political stances. And you also note that throughout his career, he resisted characterization or categorization. He said, and you quote him in saying this, I have no teaching. I only point to something. And I just wonder what that outlook and what that statement means to you as a scholar of Buber's thought and how you would characterize what it was that he was pointing to. Yes, it is important to take into consideration that uh, Buber was a child of his own time and uh, he was growing up du- during the fin de siècle, or the, the, the end of 19th century Central Europe, especially uh, Germany. And uh, so as a neo-romantic that he was, um, 
and that was the first uh, stage of his intellectual life until uh, 1916, uh, when uh, he had uh, a conversation with uh, uh, one of his best friends that uh, criticized his uh, uh, appetence to uh, the apology of the First World War. So um, he had a, he was a, a child of his time, but very soon uh, after that challenge by Landauer, Gustav Landauer, uh, he realized that uh, uh, something had to change, and uh, there was a shift in his perspective from one of uh, an apology of a war to one of a dialogical posture. And uh, um, so uh, that uh, that enabled him, or that uh, characterized uh, his thought in the second half uh, of his life after this uh, conversation with, uh, with Landauer on uh, uh, May 12th, uh, 1916. But uh, please, can you refresh your question so that I... Yes. He said, I have no teaching. I only point to something. And I just wondered what, how you would characterize what it, what it was that he was pointing to. Yes. Yes. Uh, that is uh, uh, one of the most difficult questions regarding Buber, because although he was not considered to be an observing uh, Jew, you know, uh, a Jew that saw that uh, saw as their duty to uh, to uh, perform mitzvot, to perform divine commandments, uh, so not being a, an observant Jew, yet uh, he, he was a deeply, uh, a deeply spiritual person. And uh, uh, he saw, he, I think he understood himself more in the line of prophetic Judaism, biblical Judaism, than Allahic uh, Judaism. So he, he, and this I think was part of uh, his uh, neo-romantic uh, uh, influence. Uh, it, it was how neo-romanticism had an impact on him. So he, he tried to revitalize prophetic Judaism also by studying Hasidism, which was a way of uh, enabling a living relationship with the divine through life itself in every in every uh, aspect of life, which in uh, Orthodox Judaism was seen as enshrined in the mitzvot, but uh, in a Hasidic thought, uh, it was uh, maybe less. Uh, not less alachic, but less dogmatic, and uh, life was a vehicle itself for the people. Yeah, I think I think you point out, uh, if I remember correctly, in the book that he that Buber um, 
inveighs against the concept of revealed legislation, as 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 Mendelssohn would put it. Isn't that right? He believes in in revelation as a concept and even as a as an historical event, but not in revealed law. That is the result of human interpretation. Am I correct in saying that? Exactly. And there and there is a dialogue with Franz Rosenzweig that goes in that direction uh, as well, when uh, they are uh, disputing whether the law has a, di- a divine source or not. Uh, for Buber, for example, uh, at Mount Sinai, uh, there is a meeting between two fires, the divine fire and the human fire. And uh, it's, uh, and he says, there is only this meeting. No words were communicated, but the meeting was so deep in meaning, then afterwards it takes several generations to interpret what happened up there. And the law is just a way to circumscribe the necessary environment for that fire or for that meeting to continue to shine uh, amongst the people uh, uh, through generations. Fascinating, really fascinating. Professor Oliveira, then I want to ask you, where does... Um, in Buber's view, where does the problem with chosenness arise? Is it in the interpretation of the encounter between the human and the divine fire as expressed in law? Or is it not until millennia later when Zionism uh, becomes um, uh, falls under the influence of European nationalism that the idea of chosenness becomes um combustible, as it were. In your, in your view and in your work, how where does the problem with chosenness reside? Is it in the root of the concept or the branch? Uh, very difficult uh, question. You have 586 pages in front of you to start analyzing it, but very difficult problem. I think that um... well perhaps the, another way to ask it would would be to ask not your opinion but how you how Buber interacts with the concept of chosenness over the long uh, arc of his intellectual and philosophical career does his view of chosenness change over his career and and how well in my book i concentrate uh, i dedicate my book is divided in uh, two major parts the first part has five chapters and analyzes one essay that he published in uh, march 1938 just a few months before immigrating to to what then was Palestine or Arab Israel, if you wish, and um, and the second part analyzes a, a, a different uh, uh, essay also by Buber, and um, uh, it was this uh, this essay on Israel's divine election was the last work that Buber produced before leaving. 
to to Israel, and uh, and uh, I think that the major problem of uh, that Buber uh, realizes exists in this concept is how do we place the existence of Israel vis-à-vis other nations? So what does it mean to be elected, to be chosen? Is it uh, just a self-reference for the Jewish people, or does it imply a mission where others are to be included as well. So is it a self-contained concept or is it a universal call for humanity as such? And uh, I think this reflects Martin Buber's ethical posture vis-a-vis life itself. he thinks that uh, uh, he takes a, a very genuine uh, dimension of Jewish thought uh, that uh, conceives humanity as part of the Jewish heritage. It means the existence of Israel is not a self-contained reality, but has a purpose, and that purpose includes uh, everyone, everyone else, and uh, I think uh, uh, this fundamental ethical posture is embedded in every aspect of Buber's thought, uh, especially in his uh, dialogical philosophy that was the outcome after that talk with Gustav Landauer that we if Buber's, um, you know, as a as a neo romantic, was capable of soaring eloquence, was very involved in the political life of Israel, at least for, from a conceptual um, and developmental perspective. But it was sometimes hard to understand for for people who interacted with him exactly how to put his concepts into action. Can you talk about how Buber hoped to see chosenness, election, enacted in the world? Yeah, that's a a very big problem in in Buber's intellectual life, because although he was not, uh, apparently at least, an orthodox uh, observant Jew, uh, he didn't think that uh, uh, a relationship with the living God could only be fulfilled through the performance of uh, mitzvot. Um, he was a deeply religious person, or at least spiritual person, and so he had. Uh, it was difficult for him to be understood. Sometimes even even to be accepted, both from the orthodox side and from the secular side of uh, Israeli society, because uh, at least in the orthodoxy of his time, and I think it didn't change that much since then, uh, a relationship with the living God is to be uh, fulfilled through the performance of Allah. Uh, For Buber, but Buber had a uh, more 
a prophetic understanding of what the uh, uh, relationship with the divine realm uh, ought to be. Uh, it is thought that uh, uh, being constrained by legal, by certain formulations of uh, law uh, or of halacha might uh, uh, constrain the type of living relationship that a human being can have with his or her uh, God, or with the Creator. And, uh, and so, from an orthodox point of view, it was a bit unacceptable. And from a secular point of view, they also didn't understand what does this person uh, wants of us because uh, uh, he's not performing mitzvot. So what kind of Judaism does he intend to bring uh, to us? And um, uh, so they could not, they, they felt that uh, he was uh, uh, out of his own time because uh, Judaism uh, differentiated itself from um, also from Christianity, put the emphasis on the observation of Allah. But Buber uh, was really a free spirit and uh, he thought that, uh, uh, that God could be, uh, that it's a living relationship which is important and that living relationship is not necessarily constrained by uh, legal uh, enactments. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now, uh, he did not live to see Israel's stunning triumph in the Six Day War in 1967. He died um, shortly before that. But uh, the Israel's victory in the war and its ability to take back certain uh, or to overtake or to take control over certain uh, areas. Um, um, in uh, or adjacent to Israel and in the West Bank, uh, um, gave rise to a kind of uh, messianic apocalyptic view of chosenness. And you quote uh, the scholars Avi Sagi and Dove Schwartz, who who push back against um, the impact of what they called the sacred version of history, and which you refer to as. You know, there are the the vertical and horizontal aspects of history. There's the human divine relationship and there's the temporal plane on which those relationships are played out. Uh, Sagi and Schwartz pick up on the concerns of Buber that sacred history begins to overtake human history and that the ascription of theological significance to history moves chosenness from a dialogical Relate, uh, concept. In fact, what Buber refers to um, as as an as a love relationship into a sort of dominant political relationship. Can you discuss how you see and in the and your research of the book how you what you find out about the effect of the Six Day War on popular conceptions of chosenness? Yeah. Uh... You quote Avi Sagi and Dov Schwartz, and uh, they are very brave in uh, in their critique of uh, what is happening with religious Zionism. Um, I think that uh, there is a transition from 
uh, at least from their point of view, a transition from uh, Talmudic Judaism to prophetic Judaism or uh, historical Judaism. And uh, in that sense, uh, somehow religious Zionism is coming closer to Buber's prophetic uh, uh, Judaism than to uh, an alachic uh, uh, orthodox uh, stream of thought. Um, because uh, from the point of view of uh, religious Zionism, um, there is a, a, there is a, the need to rediscover the meaning of uh, Jewish life coming back to the land uh, of Israel, and uh, so and, and there is a danger because uh, it's not. Uh, there, uh, the revolution is so deep that uh, it's Alachic Judaism itself that is at stake. And, uh, um, and uh, I think that uh, that is uh, an influence of the uh, romantic influence on, on religious Zionism itself. And uh, uh, that makes it uh, quite uh, uh, dangerous because uh, I think that uh, Allahic Judaism always kept a deference to the dimension of uh, ethics and uh, ethical life in the policy, uh, but uh, uh, religious Zionism sinks itself above ethics. If now, is that partly because, well, maybe what I should ask is, how does the concept of the land complicate the issue of chosenness for Buber and more widely in his era? Because there are arguments with uh, Leibovitch and others about what constitutes uh, Kedusha, what constitutes holiness. In other words, is the land inherently holy? And the land comes to be ascribed in religious Zionism a holiness of its own. This is something that Leibovitch and others push it back against strenuously, in, not only in your work, but in your experience of living in Israel for a decade. Uh, do you see the, the, the ascription of holiness to the land as a fundamental problem? It is both a problem and a blessing, and I'm sure I, I'm I'm sorry to have to recognize. Maybe I'm also a bit romantic or neo-romantic, <laughs> and that's what kept me for ten years there. Um, it is an ongoing, it it is a, an ongoing balance, an ongoing dynamic, because uh, the land, or at least the aspiration of being able to return to that, that particular uh, part of the world, the land. Um, I, here I would, uh, I would accept Leibovitch's point of view. Nothing is holy between heaven and earth, except he says the land is holy not in itself, but because of what is performed on it, and for Leibovitch, it's because mitzvot, uh, commandments, divine commandments, are performed on it, and that's what 
makes the land holy. Uh, so it's the relationship and the contents of that relationship with the divine. Uh, and uh, there is no kudusha in the land itself. But I think uh, that differentiates uh, Buber from Leibovitch, because for Buber, there is a near relationship between the land, the people, and the divine realm itself. What, what, what uh, Leibovitch would characterize as the Jewish trinity. <laughs> and he said there is a, a big danger in this uh, trinity. And uh, uh, because, uh, and there is a fourth person to this trinity, it's a quadrinity, it's the Torah itself. For, uh, for Leibovitch, uh, God and the Torah and the people are kind of a trinity, and I would say uh, the land itself is like <laughs> the position, the fourth person of the trinity, like in Catholicism, Mary. <laughs> the, the Interesting. Does it then, you know, um, yeah, uh, in in some ways, uh, uh, Judaism looks at the idea of the trinity and is confused by it because it doesn't understand, and I'm speaking very broadly, obviously, here, uh, Judaism rejects the idea of multiple components of a unified God. And yet, in your conception, the land, uh, uh, the people, God, and the Torah are in some ways uh, uh, a trinity with a fourth aspect layered on. Is this in your research and in your experience, does this arise partly in contestation or in dialogue with Christianity? No, I don't think. Uh, I don't think so. But uh, they fell. I mean, certain streams of Jewish thought fell in a in a similar trap in which, uh, from a Jewish point of view, Christianity did fall. Um, what? Uh, uh, just this morning, I was uh, writing something about uh, the election and the comparison uh, between uh, the election and uh, uh, and love itself. It's um, you know the light is um, detected through the objects that it illuminates when it, uh, you know, goes through space, but it is not changed by those objects. Uh, it remains uh, totally free and total, totally distinguished. And uh, so is, um, so is the, the election as well. Uh, the election is the result of a relationship between the creator and uh, the elected, but um, it is not uh, conditioned by one of those intervenients in that relation. And uh, if and the big danger is when the elected identifies itself 
with the relationship that exists between the creator and uh, the one we selected. And it's a really beautiful um, analogy to point out. Uh, it's really crystallizing to point out that the way that light hits an object does not change the light. But if the object thinks that it owns the light uh, or, or, or is in unique possession of the light, um, it is profoundly mistaken, which raises the question, uh, because everything in Judaism is subject to repeated layers of interpretation, especially as it comes into contact with lived history. In other words, as the vertical repeatedly comes into contact with the horizontal, isn't chosenness a concept that is almost impossible not to misinterpret or not to in, to put to use your analogy? Won't it bend the light inevitably? Won't lived experience change the way Israel sees its chosenness and make it find refuge in it in ways that can be dangerous? In other words, is there saving is there a way to save the concept of chosenness? Yes, and, and Buber uh, is very keen to to show that there is a big danger in this concept of chosenness. Uh, he says, and I I quote by heart: uh, "If you turn the election into an object instead of leaving it as a command, you will forfeit it. It means uh, if you forget that being elected is a call for service, and if you look at it as a privilege, you will forfeit it. You will betray uh, the reason why you became elected. So, uh, and, uh, and that means, in, in that word, service, it's a very inclusivist uh, uh, call a very inclusivist term. It it needs to include whole uh, uh, humanity. Uh, for Buber, something very tragic happened uh, during the the narrative of the Tower of Babel, uh, and the nations were when you, the then existing humanity was divided into nations, and uh, Buber. Uh, uh, and the whole concept of chosenness happens because uh, since humanity now is divided and scattered all over uh, the world, uh, in order to uh, bring it back into one reality, uh, um, God needs to uh, start something new. And uh, of course, it starts with Abraham and all that follows. But uh, uh, it's it's always impendent to or, or um, uh, very important to acknowledge that the election is a call. Uh, it's not. It doesn't change the nature of the elected, but it establishes a relationship. And uh, the problem is when a people or an individual. Uh, sees itself as, uh, or considers the election as an end in itself and not as a call um, for service where others are included. And this is all over Buber's theological thought, always acknowledging the other. And uh, 
and uh, I think his dialogical philosophy reflects uh, reflects this reality because it it's open to every human being as human and not just a human being as a Jewish person. And it was his way to translate into a universal uh, dimension uh, what he thought was the core of uh, Judaism that should be open to everyone uh, as a human being and not uh, just to the Jewish nation. Right. You you begin the book, or early in the book, you you quote Maimonides, and you you aver that um, uh, you quote Maimonides, who says that he essentially tunes out the the criticisms of fools and concentrates his commentary on the wise person who needs clarification um, so that he can understand the way forward. And you end the book with a quote from the prophet Isaiah, which makes your book as a whole seem almost like a prophetic warning. And this takes me back to your introduction in which you ask if chosenness is still binding on the people of Israel today, and you level penetrating accusations against some contemporary forms of Zionism. I'm wondering if we can conclude with um, you just reflecting on um, the prophetic tradition and how it affected um, your sort of fearless approach to the question of chosenness and to really uh, a life, a scholarly lifetime of focusing on this issue. How did the prophetic tradition and Buber's love for the prophetic tradition affect how you approached this work? Well, in a way, most of the time I feel closer to Buber than to Orthodox Judaism because uh, I am a free spirit. I was born just as a human being. And uh, I like to think that I don't have only 15 million brothers, but maybe close to 8 billion ones. And uh, so, in a way, I have an, inclu- an inclusivist mindset um, more uh, accentuated than an exclusivist mindset. And uh, so I feel that uh, maybe the prophetic Israel was closer to the original purpose that brought the Jewish people into being than uh, the Allahic uh, later uh, version after the destruction of the Second Temple. Maybe but is but is prophetic Judaism sort of the Garden of Eden that uh, that humanity can't get back to? Um, I think that both streams are important, and both streams of thought will survive, maybe hopefully until the end of time, because uh, both streams 
have something very important. I think Alaric Judaism is the skeleton of uh, this body of the Jewish heritage, but prophetic Judaism is the soul or, or the spirit that animates it. But uh, a body needs a structure, and uh, I completely understand uh, Alaric Judaism, and I totally respect it, and to a certain degree, when I can, I, I feel close to it. But uh, I think that uh, uh, prophetic Judaism has not been uh, exhausted, and uh, is the, the prophetic Judaism are the waters, or is the river on which Alachic Judaism sails, in a way. That's a beautiful um, image and uh, a fitting one on which uh, we can conclude our conversation. Uh, I want to thank you so much for talking to you about uh, your book. I've been talking to Manuel Oliveira of Portuguese Catholic University about his book, Humanity Divided, Martin Buber and the Challenges of Being Chosen, published by de Gruyter in 2021. Professor Oliveira, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure too, David. Thank you. Bye-bye.